Father, we uh, want to hear from you this morning. And Lord, I'm reminded of what Jesus said. He said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lord, we've, we've fed ourselves physically this morning. We got our coffee in hand, but Lord, we, we need spiritual nourishment. We need bread from heaven. We need you, God, to just uh, speak to the hungers and desires of the spiritual man, to the hungers and desires that can't be fulfilled by physical things, by fleshly things, by earthly possessions or earthly desires. There, there are things in our heart and in our life and in our soul that only you can satisfy, Jesus. And so we ask that you would give us bread from heaven this morning, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding that we might see the wonderful things that are in your word. And so, God, we commit this time to you. We ask that by your spirit you'd speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, at the close, so we're here we are, we're in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. And at the close of chapter 2, uh, Paul told Timothy, as he was talking about some of the things that, that were go- going on in Ephesus and some of the things that Timothy was going to face, now he's going to begin to talk about in the days to come. He told Timothy that behind those who oppose Jesus, behind the opposition that the gospel often faces, is the work of Satan, the, the work of the devil. He's active. And as he continues that thought here into chapter 3, um, what Paul is going to tell Timothy is, is that he needs to understand that opposition to the gospel and opposition to Jesus is not something that's just going to go away and get easier with the passage of time. You know, th- this is one issue that time does not fix. In fact, there, he suggests and he tells us that opposition will actually increase in the last days. Let's, let's actually check it out. We'll, I want to read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3. It says this. But understand this, that in the last days... There will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness But denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as that of those two men. Sounds like good times, right? <laughs> no, not quite. Sounds more like challenging times. Sounds more like difficult days. Paul's telling Timothy are going to come. You know, in the mornings when we were getting our kids ready for school, uh, we'd we do our best to be organized, does it happen every morning, to spend some time with our kids in the Word. And one of the things that we like to do is we have one of those little uh, uh, bread of promise or promise boxes. You, you got one of those in your house and they're just little, little cards that have scripture promises on them. And so the practice that we like to do is at the breakfast table is hand the kids and Lisa and I each take one of these uh, Bible cards and... Uh, we pass them around and read these wonderful promises from God's word. Now, as I read verse one there, I've never actually seen this one in the promise box. But understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. There will come times of difficulty. You know, at the last supper before Jesus was betrayed, he taught his disciples uh, 
In John chapter 15 through 17, it's called the upper room discourse, a a great teaching about him leaving. And then he prayed over his disciples and he taught them about the importance of abiding in the vine. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you, you'll be fruitful. You'll be able to ask for what you wish in prayer and, and I will answer you. And he spoke to his disciples about the hatred of the world that they would face. He told them, apart from me, you can do nothing. He, he promised them the gift of the Holy Spirit who would come and teach them all things and lead them into truth and empower them. He, he promised them that he would return, uh, that he would turn their sorrow into joy. And as he prayed over him, he said this in John chapter 17, in this world, you will have tribulation. Or he said this story to them, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And he prayed for them. And he said this, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Now, as we've seen, you know, through this short little letter and the time that we spent in 2 Timothy, that the life of following Christ is anything but escapism from reality, isn't it? It's it's a highway right through the middle of life. It's a path right through uh, reality. See, following Jesus is not fantasy. Following Jesus is not uh, wishful thinking. Following Jesus is not a pipe dream. Sunshine Coast people are familiar with pipe dreams. Jesus is reality. That's what the word of God says. Christianity and following Jesus Christ is as real as life gets, man. Jesus is a path right through the middle of life. You know, I I would say Jesus widens and he straightens and he smooths and he flattens mountains and he fills valleys and he uh, makes the path straight for us as we live for him. But it's not a path around reality. It's a path through reality. In the middle of that, he he's given us, he's imparted to us his spirit who speaks to our hearts and says, go right, go left. This is the way walk in it. And so the gospel, you know, is, is not the promise of ease. And in this letter, you know, Paul is going to encourage Timothy. He has been encouraging Timothy of the necessary steps of learning to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Suffer for the gospel by the power of God. Share in the suffering for the gospel like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. See, Paul has been talking to Timothy about having knowledge, but then living responsibly for Christ, knowledge and responsibility. And he's going to stay on that theme. And so he, he says here, but understand this in the last day, there will come times of great difficulty. Now understanding, um, or sorry, he says in the last days, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now understanding the biblical time frame of what is defined as the last days is important as we uh, read this. The last days or a reference to the last last days in the scripture uh, refers to a period of time that began with the ascension of Christ into heaven and continues on until his return from heaven, until the rapture of the church and his return from heaven. You recall in Uh, the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, the disciples were instructed to wait in Jerusalem until they had been clothed with power from on high. And so there there they were, they were in Jerusalem, they were in that area of uh, the upper room. Jesus had ascended into heaven, they were waiting on God. And Acts chapter two tells us about the Holy Spirit being poured out upon those disciples. You know the story, the, the mighty, there was the sound of the mighty rushing wind and flame came into the room and it separated and went to each one of those 
individuals and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon those individuals and they spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance and they proclaimed uh, to those around them uh, the wonders and, and glories and mighty works of God. And those who witnessed uh, what was going on were perplexed. They, they asked, what do these things mean? Some of them even mocked what was happening with the disciples. And Peter stood up um, uh, along with the other uh, 11 apostles and he lifted his voice and with great boldness, he proclaimed the prophecy of Joel is fulfilled. And he spoke these words from the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be. Paul here is also talking about the last days. Joel said this, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. See the last days or a reference to the last days speaks of that dispensation in time between the ascension of Christ and the rapture of the church and his returning. And the promise is that during those last days from Paul, the spirit of God, Joel said the spirit of God will be poured out. And Paul said there will be times of difficulty. And so, you know, when is the, the period of the last days? It's, it's from the time of Christ through the days that we're living right now until he returns. And if we were to look back over the last 2,000 years of, of human history, we can see that there has definitely been certain seasons, certain times in history where difficulties really flared up for the people of God. I mean, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has always faced difficulty. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has always faced opposition. The gospel in Timothy's day, 2,000 years ago, faced opposition and difficulty. And we know the gospel in our day faces opposition and difficulty as well. Now, as we read about these days and how Paul describes them, he's going to give, you know, 19 descriptions about these times. And Timothy faced these realities and we know we also face these realities. Uh, but there's certainly a sense, I would say, in this, this passage that as the return of Christ approaches there will be an escalation in what we're reading here. Difficulty will ramp up. You know, there's a word apostasy that you sometimes hear in a church. Apostasy. It speaks of man's abandonment of religious things. Man's abandonment of seeking God, believing in God, of having religious belief. And the tendency of apostasy in the last days, that abandonment will be this. People will accept the ethical teachings of Jesus, but they will reject their need to be born again or to be regenerated by the spirit of God. Oh, they'll preach, love thy neighbor as thyself. I mean, you can hear that in culture all over the place. You know, they will preach, judge not lest you be judged, but they will ignore the words of Jesus who said this, you must be born again. They'll preach the second greatest commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself, but they'll ignore the first, which says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, there's a first commandment and there's a second commandment. And if you get the order messed up, you'll mess that up in the application in your life. Loving your neighbor only happens right if you first love God. You love God. And then out of that, we love our neighbors. And the tendency of, of the apostasy of the last times will be this. Accept the ethical teachings of Jesus, but reject the need to be born again and regenerated by his spirit. Look, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. It, just a few sentences Later, a couple of verses in the Bible, he said again to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born of the spirit and of water, you will never enter the kingdom of God. 
See, it's not just following the ethical teachings of Christ, but there is a need to be regenerated by the spirit of God. Born of water and born of spirit. Born once by the flesh, born a second time by the spirit. Born again. And so what does the unregenerate life look like in the last days and in difficult times? Well, he says this again. People will be lovers of self. Lovers of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Boy, there's a lot you could say about those verses, right? You know, flip open the, watch the TV and some news and I mean, there's a lot you could say to give a little bit of commentary on culture and, and on the life of the flesh. A couple years back, um, I had the chance to uh, speak in a, a camp setting to some young adults and um, afterwards just rap with some of them and talk about life and things they were going through and, and pray. And I had one young lady came up to me and um, was just sharing how the word of God had resonated with her heart and what she felt the spirit of God was saying to her. And she began uh, to share with me this spiritual struggle that she had. And she said, you know, I think my problem is, is that I just don't love myself. And maybe you could pray for me that I would just grow in my ability to love myself. And you know, she was a sweet girl. She was sincere. She was desiring to, to grow in the Lord. And I, and I stopped her as she was sharing. And I said, you know, I don't believe the answer to your problem is learning to love yourself more. But that you would learn to love Christ more. See, in our culture, there's no issue with not loving ourselves. Our issue is we love ourselves more than we love God. We should not pray to love ourselves. We should pray that we would love Christ more. I would say lovers of self is the characteristic of our day and of the culture within which we live. You know, men and women are encouraged to love themselves. You know, not that we should hate ourselves. That's not what the scripture is saying. It's not that we should hate ourselves. But the love of self is the foundation of everything that Paul mentions in this list of 19 things. If it starts with one thing that turns it sideways, it's with loving self. Love of self is the foundation of all human difficulty. See, Jesus loved his father and out of that he loved us and out of that he learned to deny himself and lay down his life to humble himself before God. And love of self and the selfishness it gives birth to is the the source of human difficulty. It's the source of sin. It's sin really in its most basic of forms and it's it's the cause of the self-centered Self-righteous life. Loving self. The very essence of sin, really. I think of the words of Cain. Who after he murdered his, his brother and the Lord asked, where's your brother? He said, am I my brother's keeper? No heart for someone else. Self-love. See, self-love points to the very fact that the center of gravity for the The natural fleshly man, me and my flesh without Jesus, remove Jesus from my life, God forbid. Remove Jesus from my life and the center of gravity for this fleshly man is myself. The world and the universe revolves around me. And those who have been born again, as Jesus said, must happen. If we're to ever see or enter the kingdom of God, must have a gravity shift. It's got to change. Your universe has to change. That's why you have to be born again. 
There, there has to be a change in your universe from the life of the flesh to the life of the spirit, from the life of being self-centered to the life of being Christ-centered. From the life of where self is enthroned to the life where Jesus Christ is enthroned. Where rather than the universe revolving around you, when you are born again, the universe revolves around King Jesus. See, there's the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit. The life of impossibilities and the life of possibilities. The life of blindness and the life of vision. The life of being immobilized and crippled spiritually to the life of being empowered by the spirit of God with, with vision and focus and without limits. Paul also says they'll be lovers of money. That sounds like a description of our culture, right? It sounds like a description that every single one of us wrestle with. You know, the Pharisees and the stories of the gospel is that they were lovers of money. And Jesus said to them, you cannot serve God in mammon. He says they'll be proud. Speaking of pride, pride, pride is just improper and excessive self-esteem that you could call conceit or arrogance. He does say they're arrogant, just that exagger- again, that exaggerated sense of one's self-importance. I mean, let's just roll through the list. Abusive, offensive, insulting. It, that, that's the kind of character that's, that's characterized by physically imposing your will on someone by force. Physically abusive. Jesus said they'll even be disobedient to their parents. It's ama- to me, it's amazing that that's listed amongst all of these things that that's counted right up there with, with all of these sins that, that Paul is mentioning. You know that the Bible teaches that the fruit of love is this. The fruit of love is obedience. Jesus said to those who followed him, he said, if you are my disciples, if you are truly my disciples, then you will obey my teaching." the fruit of following and of loving will be obedience. And so to describe someone as disobedient to their parents is to describe someone whose actions are ultimately unloving is to describe someone's actions who are rooted in self-love Romans chapter one, a great chapter about the de-evolution of man into sin and into the life of the flesh. Uh, List disobedience to parents as the fruit of a depraved mind. He says ungrateful, not feeling or, or showing gratitude, unholy. That nothing about their lives is set apart to God. An unholy life, I would say, that, that's a, that is the disc- ultimate description of a sinful life. Heartless. That is a life completely lacking in, in feeling or any sense of consideration unappeasable, nothing satisfies, nothing pacifies, no, no physical experience or trip or possession or just nothing satisfies. Slanderous, meaning they're false and malicious without self-control, not, not even the ability to restrain themselves or their desires. He says, not loving good, treacherous, you know, guilty, treachery, guilty of, of, of betrayal and deception, not loving good. You know, Titus said in his list of qualifications for church leaders, he said, they got to be a lover of good. Paul, Paul says, in these days, in various times, men will not love good. Reckless, without thought. Or care that their actions could have consequences for other people or, or for themselves or besides themselves. He says, swollen with conceit. I think of a river, you know, just ready to uh, break its banks. To bust the levee because of pride swelling in their life. He says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 
I was wearing my Nike shirt yesterday. It's this comfy shirt. Um, and right on my Nike shirt, well, you know, the, the word Nike is a Greek word, right? It means what? Nike, Nike means victory. It's a Greek word for victory. And, you know, the, the shoe company, sports apparel, all their stuff, they're about victory, and they have a slogan for victory. And what's their slogan? Just do it. Just do it. You make the rules. You answer to no one. You're the one who matters. The universe revolves around you. You do what you want. You're a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. And that is victory in this life. You know, King David, who was a shepherd and a warrior and a giant slayer, uh, King David, who the, the Bible calls a man after the heart of God, discovered the source of pleasure. And you know what he said about pleasure? In, in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, he said this, you make known to me the path of life. Speaking of God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, look, the Bible's not asking us to choose between pleasure and to choose between pleasure and God. The Bible's telling us that when you seek God, you discover what pleasure really is. That when you pursue Jesus Christ, you discover what life is all about. You, you'll find pleasures at the right hand of God. In verse 5, Timothy, uh, Paul says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. You know, here's this, the shocking thing as you think about that verse. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. As Paul gives this description of last days living, Here's the kicker right here. That these godless people are found within what visibly looks like should belong to God. Visibly found within the church. They, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. You know, I, I just think of Jesus' experience in the temple where he he wandered in there and he sat down and he braided a, a whip. And then he kicked over the tables of the money changers. And with a whip, he drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he said, take these things away. You have made my father's house a house of trade. And, you know, I think of Jesus who denounced the religious leaders for their hypocrisies. He said, you Pharisees, you, you clean the Outside of the cup and inside, you're, you're full of greed and wickedness. You're like a whitewashed tomb, man. He criticized them for the way that they dressed and tried to look cool and flowing in robes and this and that and how they love formality. And he said, you love to walk around in flowing robes and you like to be greeted in the marketplaces. And for a show, you make lengthy prayers. See, look, the Pharisees had the appearance of godliness. And having the appearance of godly means, godliness means this. That these people engage all of the outward rituals of worship. Their lives appear good. I mean, how many neighbors do we have? We say, man, their lives are so good. They're just missing Jesus. They have the appearance of good, but off track. Engaging the outward without being transformed on the inside. Maybe they come to church, sing the choruses, but it's nothing to do with the inward power and working of the Spirit of God. And see, without the reality of the presence of God, religion and, and church and good living is just empty. And it makes for an empty soul. If you spend any time there, like me, you know it makes for an empty soul. It, it's why many churches are even the way that they are today. See, Paul says this, there's power in godliness. You know, some would teach that godliness is a means to gaining power and getting what you want. So you live a godly life and then... 
it comes, man. But that's actually not what Paul is saying. And such people that, that, that teach that don't know about the resurrected life and the power of the spirit. You see, the power of godliness has nothing to do with the power to have selfish desires fulfilled. The power of godliness actually speaks of the power godliness should have over our lives. It's not godliness so I get power. It's godliness brings power over me. It exhorts power over me. It's godliness gains power over the self-directed life to make it the spirit-directed life. Godliness gives power so that the self-enthroned life becomes the Jesus-centered life. And you know, you just think about our culture and our world, we would say, you know, fleshly, fleshly people despise the fact that godliness should direct their lives. You know, many deny that, that God has the power or the authority to tell them what to do or how their lives should look or that he speaks through his word. The, fesh, the fleshly man, you know, wants to, to take this book and pick and, and choose and randomly apply it. But my friends, that's not how the word of God works. I'm not the authority here. The Bible is the authority and it divides between the flesh, the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit. And so as Paul just talks about the last days and what that looks like, the days in which you and I are living in which I believe we'll see an increase of before the Lord comes. In the midst of that, Paul says, here's some instructions, Timothy. Look at the end of verse five. B, the elder statesman in the Lord an instruction for son in the faith. He says this, avoid such people. I, you know, to me, that kind of blows me away because that is like such a simple strategy. It's like, wow, okay, I want to be godly. I'm living in this culture. Wow, that, that, is, that is so simple and straightforward, Paul. That's like, that's not hard. See, that's the simple strategy for the corruption of the last days. Avoid such people. Turn away from those who love pleasure more than they love God. They know nothing of the spirit empowered life and, and the, the resurrect, the power of the resurrected Christ. Just turn away from that stuff. It's not, it's not asking you to not be gospel focused. It's not saying don't go without, you know, take the gospel, go. But in your life, there's a certain level of avoidance that must happen for godly living. He says, among them are those, in verse 6, who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Those who propagate a form of godliness not based on Jesus creep around neighborhoods. (laughs) That's what Paul's saying. They look for people with time on their hands whom they can say, Hey man, we should have a Bible study in your house and, or we could study our scriptures or we could do this. Let's hold a class in your house and we'll share with you our insights. We'll share with you the special knowledge that only our group has. And you can learn about our experiences and how you can only have them, whatever. He says, that's their gig. It says in verse eight, just as Jans and Jamres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in the mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. I love the story of Moses and the Exodus. Don't you love that story? That is a great story. Lord appears to Moses. He says, I'm, I'm sending you back. You're going to go to Egypt. I've, I have seen the bondage and the slavery that my people are experiencing, the oppression from the hand of the Egyptians and Pharaoh. I want you to go to Pharaoh and you're going to give him a message from God. You tell him, let my people go that they may worship me. Moses, you know the story with a little bit of resistance, getting a sidekick and his brother Aaron agrees to go. And in that process of him being prepared to go, he says to the Lord, well, what if I, you know, I say it, 
Let my people go that they may worship me. And Pharaoh doesn't listen. Then what? The Lord says, what's in your hand, Moses? Throw your staff on the ground. And you know the story. What did the staff become? A, a serpent. A snake. And Moses picked it up, grabbed it by the tail, and it became a staff again. And so into the presence of Pharaoh, Moses went. He delivered the message. Pharaoh said, who's your God that I should listen to him? And staff went down on the ground and it became a serpent. But something amazing in that story happens as you read it in Exodus chapter six and seven there. That Pharaoh called in his magicians, Jans and Jambres. And they matched Moses' miracle. They too threw down their staffs and their staffs also became snakes. And Pharaoh refused to let the people go. The story goes on. The first plague happens. Moses appears to, to, to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go that they may worship. Otherwise, all the water is going to turn to blood. And you know the story. It happened. It was undrinkable. It was rancid. Bloop. The fish came to the surface. I mean, it was nasty. But again, Pharaoh called in his magi- magicians. I almost said musicians. <laughs> Jans and Jambres. And they too matched Moses' miracle and they turned water into blood. Second plague comes. The plague of frogs. They're everywhere. Pharaoh's asking for relief. If you only would have listened to the command of God, let my people go that they may worship me. But in the process, again, Pharaoh calls in his magicians, his musicians, and that's for, for you, Trish. And again, the magicians match the miracle of Moses and they cause frogs to appear. Third plague comes. Your worst nightmare. You know, lice and bed bugs. The dust turns into gnats. As bad as you can, yeah, I can hear the groans. As bad as you can imagine, a nightmare. Exodus 18, verse 18 says this. 8, verse 18 says this. That Jans and Jambres again came into the presence of Pharaoh. And this time, they could not match the miracle that Moses had performed. And they said to Pharaoh this. This is the finger of God, Pharaoh. This, this, see, the magicians recognized that although they could, uh, you know, they could reproduce the miraculous, that when it came to the gnats, their inability to, to match the miracle, they were dealing with the finger of God, let alone his thumb or his hand or his wrist or his arm or his thigh or his waist or all of his strength. I mean, listen, Pharaoh, you need to understand something. We can do some tricks and play some games. But this is God working at his smallest strength. And if he exhorts anymore, we're going to feel it. The Bible actually says that by the time the sixth plague came, the boils that were on men and animals, that the magicians could not even come before Moses because they themselves were so covered in boils. Jans and Jambres, could they perform miracles? Yes, they could. But they were counterfeit. And that is how Satan operates through the counterfeit. And so we need to know the difference between the genuine and the counterfeit. See the miracles, I would say, you know, I was thinking about the story. I'm like, man, that's such a rad story. The miracles performed by Moses were motivated by this directive from the Lord. Let my people go that they may worship me. Let my people go from what? From slavery from the power of oppression, from bondage, from the heavy-handed tyrant. The miracles that the magicians performed, the counterfeit match Moses game thing, were motivated by this. Keep the people in slavery. Keep the people in bondage. Keep them under the heavy-handed tyrant, Pharaoh. Counterfeit and genuine. See, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. See, that's freedom. Freedom from sin. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, that is freedom from oppression, truth, and life. The word of God tells us, he whom the son sets free is free indeed. That's, that's release from bondage. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. See, that is freedom from a heavy-handed tyrant. See, Satan's counterfeit miracles will attempt always to keep you in slavery. To keep you in bondage. To keep you in oppression. And the work of Christ is always this, to set you free. The first miracle that Jesus, that Moses did, he threw that, that, that staff to the ground and it was a foreshadow of what was going to happen. You know, the story is a great story. What did that snake do? He swallowed the other snakes. He, he, he swallowed them up. Moses' snake swallowed up the magician's snakes. And, and that is the difference between the genuine and the counterfeit. The, a genuine miracle of Christ and the counterfeit work of Satan, the genuine will swallow the counterfeit. You know, it's interesting that these names, Jans and Jambres, are, are, are translated, they can be translated trickster and juggler. And we live in the last days and people... Regarding the message of Jesus, they want to trick and they want to juggle and they want to present counterfeit. And I think of this message, I would say this, you know, this is a message of great hope in the midst of great darkness. You know, you go through those first few verses and it's like, holy smokes, man, that's heavy as the Lord talks about, as Paul talks, uh, as directed by the Spirit, about the last days. It's, it's great darkness, but in the midst of it, there's great hope. That there is an answer to the spirit of the last days. And the answer is this, Jesus Christ. The glorious truth is this. We don't have to be bound by the spirit of the last days. We don't have to be slaves to self. We don't have to be slaves to sin. We don't have to live under the power of death. Under the oppressive hand of Satan. We don't have to have our universes revolve around ourselves. It's a small universe. There's hope. And it's found in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says to Timothy in verse 10. He says, you, however, there's a difference. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecution and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. You know, sometimes it's just this tendency within the church to want to minimize the, the differences between the life of the flesh and a life lived for Jesus. A life lived in this world and a life lived for Christ. But salvation is not just some sort of, you know, verbal assent to the Christian message. It's a repentance of sin, a change of mind, and a turning in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the difference between being born of the flesh and being born of the spirit. It is the difference of between the self-centered life and the Christ-centered life. Jesus never said, you know, ascend to some, come to some verbal confession. He said this, you must be born again, Nicodemus. Otherwise you're blind. Otherwise you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the truth is for us, this church, we, we will never win the world. We will never win this community for Christ by trying to be like this world. But only by showing them how different living for Jesus can be. And I would say if, there, if there's no difference, then what's the point anyways? There's a difference. There's a difference. You are different. Do 
You've been born of the Spirit, and you don't need to apologize for it. You rejoice in it. And Paul says to Timothy, in contrast to the work of Jans and Jambres, in a, in a personal comparison that he makes of himself to Moses, I mean, get this, what he's saying. He says, you know me, Timothy. You know, they're false teachers and they're charlatans. They talk in riddles. They do magic tricks. You know, they're impressive for a moment or two. But you know me, Timothy. You know what I am for the gospel. You know what I teach. You know what I have been through on behalf of the gospel. You know what kind of man I am. You followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my, my persecutions, my suffering, Timothy. And see, you know, the best kind of Christianity is a kind of Christianity that's not only just taught, but it can be caught. It can be seen as it's lived out in faith. And Timothy, he heard the teaching of Paul, but I'll tell you something else about Timothy. He caught the teaching of the man. He caught his conduct. He caught his aim in life. He caught his faith. He caught his patience. He caught his love. He caught his steadfastness. Paul held on and Timothy carefully followed. You know, Timothy knew that in Antioch, Paul was kicked out of the city for preaching the gospel. Timothy knew that in Iconium, Paul had to flee for his life because there was a plot to murder him. They were going to stone him. Timothy knew that in his own town, the town that he grew up in, the city of Lystra, that the crowds in opposition to the message of the gospel that Paul preached actually seized him and stoned him and they dragged him out of the city thinking that he was dead. And so Paul says, Timothy, you, you know my sufferings for the gospel, the persecutions that I endured and that the Lord rescued me from. Follow me as I follow Christ. And he says this, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Wow, again, you know, I've never seen that one in my promise box. I don't know why they don't use that one to mark at the promise box. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Look, you follow Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. Promise of the word of God. It takes different forms, right? You don't fit in. People sneer. They laugh at your values. They think, what's the thing? I mean, and we know in, that there are places in the world that it escalates way, below, way beyond that. To followers of Christ physically laying down their lives for the confession and belief of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He says again, Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he says this, the, the, the breach, the valley between darkness and light in the last days, it's not going to be healed. There's not going to be a bridge built across that great valley. But it will widen. The dark will become darker and the light will become brighter. And so again, he says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have been firmly and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Great teaching, man. Continue in what you know. Continue in what you've learned. Continue in that which you have been assured of, Timothy. You know, it's interesting that Paul doesn't say this. Dig deeper, man. He doesn't even say, like, produce more good works. Conform the outward part of your life to religion. Uh, you know, he's, he just says this. Timothy, stick with what you know. And it's true that the way to avoid false spirituality is to stick with the basics. 
You know, you always find in various false spiritual practices, the departure and the twisting of Christian basics. You know, the incarnation, Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, his physical resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his return. I'll mess with lots of that stuff. Repentance, turning from sin and then faith, turning to Christ. We just add good works to that whole situation and scenario. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. The false will mess with the word of God. Every time questioning its authority and every time questioning its inerrancy. That's why Paul actually goes where he goes next. Look at verse 15. He says, uh, to talk about the word of God as, he close, as this chapter closes. He says, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How many of you guys grew up in church in Sunday school? Aren't you thankful for that foundation that godly men and women laid in your, li- laid in your lives? They, they took time out to serve kids because they believed in the gospel. You know, in a certain sense, you know, our teachers are like missing out, right? Down there investing in little lives for the kingdom. You know, God is going to honor that. He's going to honor it in the, in, in the lives of those children and he's going to honor it in the lives of those leaders because those kids are going to serve Jesus because they were taught the word of God. How many of you guys, moms and dads, who laid a foundation of the word of God in your life? Timothy, ever since you were a child, you were taught these things. And he says, Timothy, the word of God will make you wise regarding Jesus. The written word will point you to Jesus Christ, the living word, and what it's like to have a relationship with him. He says in verse 16, great, man, underline it, circle it, brackets around it. It's an awesome one. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See that little word all? Uh, the Greek word for all is a fascinating word. If, if you were to look it up and look it up in its original and define it, it doesn't matter what you try to do with it. It always translates in the same thing into English. All. It's really amazing. All. All. Every single time. I guess all means all. That's, what, that's why it's there. All means all. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, if I could just remove, you know, for a moment that word all, then all of a sudden, rather than having the word of God judge me and all of a sudden it being the authority, I can now become the authority. I can now decide what's breathed by God and what's not breathed by God. I, the flesh, can judge that which is spirit. But that's not what the word of God tells us. It says all scripture is breathed by God. In other words, the spirit should judge my flesh. It's a sword. It separates flesh and spirit. The word of God judges. And so, you know, we might ask, can we trust the Bible? Well, I might ask this. I wasn't going to, I thought, man, I could really go crazy here. Can we trust the Bible? I have a great DVD floating out there in the church about can I trust the Bible. Actually, I have another copy in my office. So first one, okay, first come, first serve. Um, can we trust the Bible? Well, let me ask you this. Is it conceivable that God would give his people a book that they can't trust? Does that seem to line up with the nature of God? It's not. It doesn't. Think about this. Bible's not just one book. It's a book we divide into two, Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. 
these 37 and 29 books, what's that number again? 68, right? Good, good. You guys are awake. Nice. I like it. Uh, We're written over some 15 centuries. 40 different authors. You know, with all sorts of different backgrounds, you know, you got, you got kings like David and Solomon. You get Solomon who was kind of doubled as a king and a philosopher in Ecclesiastes. You got poets in the Psalms and farmers like the prophet Amos. Statesmen like Daniel, you know, government official. Priests like Ezekiel and Ezra. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Fishermen like Peter and John. Scholar like Paul. You know, the the variety of authorship is like so diverse, stretched over such a long period of time, you you, you kind of expect that you just find this mixed bag of tricks and gimmicks and all over the map, going this way, going that direction. But you and I know that if you read the Bible, you find exactly the opposite. You don't find, not inconsistent. Instead, the, the Bible has this amazing unity from Genesis, Genesis to Revelation that only the spirit of God could have woven through it. And and there's one theme right through the middle. God's plan for redeeming you from sin. God's plan for you to have the center of your world change from being self-focused to having Christ at the center. And Paul says this in closing. Trish, you can come on up here. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Look, God has two desires that I'm going to point out to you in there, and then we're going to close. It's this. Beautiful. That you may be complete. Did you know that? That's God's desire for you. That you would be complete. Some Bibles say that you would attain perfection. Not perfection in terms of, you know, the outward thing, but but that you would know God and that your life would be complete. And the second thing that Paul says is, first, that you would be complete, and second, that you may be equipped for every good work. God wants, wants you to have skill in doing good. You know, we live in the midst of difficult days, the last days, difficult times. In the midst of that, we wonder, how do I pursue my godly desires? How do I follow God? Stand on the word of God and it's revelation of Christ to us. Amen? Stand with me this morning and let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that the word you eternally existed before there was a written form. Before your spirit gave utterance to kings and prophets and priests and farmers and fishermen and scholars. You existed first. You gave the written form you manifested yourself in the flesh and you lived the perfect life. You, you took the, the sin and the punishment for sin that was due to each one of us and you bore it in your body on the cross so that we might die to sin and learn to live for you. And Jesus, we just confess from our hearts this morning, it is our desire, Lord, not to live this self-focused life, but to grow in living the Christ-centered life. And Jesus, you said to the crowds, you proclaimed, and we've heard it through your word today, that for that to happen, there is a need for man to be born again. And so I just, for a minute, I want to speak to that this morning. I'm going to ask it everybody to close, close their eyes, bow their heads, so you just respect your neighbor beside you, give them a little bit of privacy. You must be born again. 
Just like you were, you were born of the flesh from your mother's womb, there must be, that same process must happen spiritually. And Jesus, that, that's a work that happens in your heart and happens in your spirit. And the Bible says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You'll be born again. There, there is a repentance from sin and a turning in faith to Christ. It says, I, I turn from my sin, I turn from myself, and Jesus, I turn to you. It's a work of the Spirit. And so this morning, if, if you would like to invite Christ into your heart and life, I just encourage you to say that in your, in your heart and from your mouth, Jesus, I turn from my sin, and I turn to you. Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin. I ask you to forgive me, and in faith, I trust you to save me. It's the work of the Spirit. It'll transform your life radically. And God desires that for you. He loves you. His intentions towards you are gracious and good. He wants to give you a hope and a future. And in these difficult days, we need him. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word to us this morning. It's good, Lord, to know that we're your people. It's good to have you as our God. We bless you, Lord. In your name, amen.